hppodcraft.com. It was one of those things they keep in a jar in the tent of a sideshow on the outskirts of a little drowsy town. One of those pale things drifting in alcohol plasma, forever dreaming and circling, with its peeled dead eyes staring out at you and never seeing you. It went with the noiselessness of late night, and only the crickets chirping, the frogs sobbing off in the moist swampland. One of those things in a big jar that makes your stomach jump as it does when you see a preserved arm in a laboratory vat. Charlie stared back at it for a long time. Just one of those things you see every day, you know, road rage, political fights on TV, a preserved arm in a laboratory vat. Hmm. Wait, what? (laughs) Where's Ray Bradbury been hanging out? Well, he's going to be hanging out with us all month here at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. We're here at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon, and it is the most wonderful time of the year, October. My birthday's this week. It's Halloween season. You know, there's lots of monsters at at the stores you can pick up. Yeah. Candy. It's all good stuff. So we thought, why not do some stories from the October Country by Ray Bradbury? And that's what we're doing, starting this week with the story, The Jar, which we heard about right in that creepy beginning there. And uh, we also heard some creepy music. That's right. Creepy music from our sponsor for this month, Repairer of Reputations. We've had them on before. It's great spooky, analog, ambient uh, soundtrack music. Repairer of Reputations is back with a kick-ass new album. It's called Insport 86, and it's the soundtrack to a non-existent film. I'll hit you with the synopsis. The year is 1986. The film is a Lovecraft pastiche that also borrows from the works of William Hope Hodgson. Innsport is the name of a fictional town created for the fake film setting, a slight variation on Innsmouth, the fake film financiers probably hoping to avoid getting sued. <laughs> All of the instruments on this album are authentic to the period, an unholy cyclopean tower of rack mounts, samplers, analog synthesizers, drum machines, spring reverbs, and effects units. From this blasted heap, repair of reputations conjures sounds that can only be described as vaguely 80s. <laughs> Ranging from John Carpenter worship to Tangerine Dream worship, yes, Love it. and everything in between. If you're into that particular period of horror film music, and you know that I am, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to love this album. So check it out, Insport 86, we'll link out in the show notes, and we'll be playing excerpts from the record on this show today. Make sure to go pick it up at Bandcamp. So that was the music that we heard. Who was that reader at the top? Yeah, well, that reader was, once again, Levi Nunez. He's back on the show. Yes. And speaking of music, Levi just released his first D&D theme song from his band. I guess it's a band, you know, when a guy does a band, but it's just a guy like Nine Inch Nails. Or Repair of Reputations, I believe. <laughs> or Repair of Your Reputations, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Levi's new band is called Loot the Body. He's got a video and song that is inspired by the Tower of the Elephant, the Conan story. So uh, go check that out as well. We'll link out to that in the show notes as well. So glad to have Levi back on the show. I know he's yes. a science fiction fan. Oh, yeah. Bradbury is often thought of as the king of science fiction. However, he also wrote horror and weird fiction. We've covered two Bradbury stories before, The Foghorn and The October Game. Yeah, The Foghorn was a bit more romantic, whereas these stories are closer to The October Game in Mm. tone. Kind of nasty. Great, well-written stories, but a little mean-spirited. The anthology The October Country was published in uh, 1955. Bradbury has a note at the beginning of that book that I will read to you. I open it up here. This is my signed copy I have here. Fifteen of the stories included in this collection were written before my 26th birthday and published in August Derleth's Arkham House edition of my first book, Dark Carnival. 
This book has been out of print for some years, and I welcome the opportunity given to me by the editors of Ballantine Books to select, edit, and in some cases rewrite my favorite stories from that early work. For my later readers, the October Country will present a side of my writing that is probably unfamiliar to them, and a type of story that I rarely have done since 1946. Looking back on those years, I cannot help but express again my gratitude to August Derleth, who was my first publisher editor. Hmm. And he goes on to thank some other folks, but that's one of the really great things that Derleth did. He got this guy Ray Bradbury into print for the first time. Yeah. Which is a, a connection, obviously, to Lovecraft and that circle and the whole thing. So he does have a spot on this show for that reason, yeah. <laughs> but primarily because he's my favorite author of all time. And sure, the stuff that he writes is really good. Let's jump into the story. Okay. It begins with this guy named Charlie standing at an oddity show at a carnival somewhere out in the boonies of Louisiana. Man, Bradbury loves his carnivals. Carnivals are really cool and creepy and interesting and exciting. And there's there's a lot you can do with carnivals. There is, you know, and we went to carnivals when we were kids. I mean, people still do. Oh, yeah. Obviously, the carnivals that Bradbury would have been attending when he was a young guy in the 30s would have been much different in terms of mm-hmm. what they had on offer. I think you would still sure. have the rides, but you have a lot more shows and a lot more odd oddities, and a lot more things that probably would even be illegal now that you couldn't <laughs> yeah, probably. bring to a carnival. So this guy, Charlie, he sees this thing in a jar and he becomes transfixed by it. Charlie is a farmer. He's tall and thin. And he's got rough hands that have worked hard his whole life. The way this jar is described in the opening, the, it's got this nonchalance to it, which I was making fun of, but I, I, I believe it's on purpose. He says, one of those pale things drifting in alcohol plasma, forever dreaming and circling, with its peeled dead eyes staring out at you and never seeing you. Oh, oh, one of those things. You know, he, <laughs> he pretends it's commonplace. And maybe this was more common in those carnivals that Bradbury sure. attended, like I mentioned, but the carnivals we attended were terrifying for other reasons, though. Yeah. You know, those rides were not necessarily <laughs> in the best shape, and some of the folks working, some of the carnies were interesting characters. There you go. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> but it's interesting how he describes the thing in the jar, yet doesn't describe it. All we yeah. really know is that it has eyes of some kind. As he looks at this thing, he he's approached by a, a carnival barker. Charlie wants to know if it's for sale, and the carny says no, but if you had a few dollars, maybe eight or ten or twelve, you know, just keep up in the number. Yeah, this guy's just not any carny. He's described as the carny boss, and he's got those money-making skills that come along with the carny boss title. It's a pretty funny sequence where he's bargaining with Charlie. He's just saying numbers like you were and waiting until he <laughs> frowns. He hits 15 and then Charlie kind of frowns. So he backtracks to 12. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah that, that's the one that'll work. So he's very good at reading those cues. Charlie tells him that he's got $12 on him and that he's willing to pay. The Barker agrees saying, I was tired of seeing that damn thing around anyway. Don't thank me. Lately, I've been thinking things about it. Funny things, but hell, I'm a big mouth so-and-so. So long, farmer. I think that's a key point to remember for later in the story. But it's also important here that Charlie's got a certain kind of reasoning for wanting the jar. He says, I've been reckoning how looked up to I'd be back down at Wilder's Hollow if I brung something home like this to set on my shelf over the table. The folks would sure look up to me then, I bet. So it implies that he's not very well respected at home and that he very much so craves that respect. Mm -hmm. So Charlie takes the thing in the jar and he puts it in his carriage, which is pulled by a horse. And he rides back home through the little town called Wilder's Hollow. It's sloshed back and forth, back and forth, sloshed wet, and the cold gray thing drowsily slumped against the glass, looking out, looking out, but seeing nothing. Nothing. You know, as always, Bradbury's writing is really good. It's got a beautiful rhythm to it. Over and over, he hits on this notion that the thing looks out but sees nothing. That's been repeated a few times now. Uh, I think he's setting up the fact that it's all about what we see when we look at it. Mm-hmm. that it doesn't put off anything. It's all about what we interpret it as. So he rides into town and he sees the old guys hanging out at the general store. And Charlie greets them and he tells them he's got something to show them. 
This one guy, Tom Carmody, hangs back, and he's always hanging back. He talks from the shadows, this guy. Tom Carmody was forever installed under porches in shadow, or under trees in shadow, or if in a room, then in the farthest niche, shining his eyes out at you from the dark. His eyes were always fun in you, and every time they looked at you, they laughed a different way. Great description. He's a jerk, because he says, You ain't got nothing we wants to see, baby doll. (laughs) Baby doll? Yeah, I wonder if he blew him a kiss, too, when he said it, if he's one of those guys. You know? uh, <laughs> looks kind of like a brain, kind of like a pickled jellyfish, kind of like, well, come see yourself, is what Charlie says about it. Mm. So the others, they take a look at this thing, and they're amazed, but Charlie quickly takes it back, and he says if they want to see more of it, they got to come over to his house. Charlie, for the first time in his life, seized on some hidden strategy and crashed the glass lid shut. So right away, he sees that not only could this earn him some respect, but people are so interested, he could actually get them to come over to his house and hang out, which is what he craves more than anything. Also, I like that it's the first time in his life he seized on some hidden strategy. He has never been a duplicitous person. Right. It's important to his character. This is the first time he went, hey, wait a minute. If I just say this is at home, they'll come see me whether they want, you know. (laughs) Yeah. They'll have to come hang out with me. I was also surprised at this point that he had the jar open when people were looking at it. For some reason, I assumed it was all sealed up. I thought that was odd as well. It means that at any time they could pull out whatever's in there and examine it more closely. But nobody does this in the entirety of the story. They say his wife will not be happy about it. They say, she'll kick the tar off our heels. Uh, But Charlie, he doesn't care. He just wants company. He's a guy looking for some respect. So Charlie sets the jar up on a shelf at home. He thinks of it as the emperor of the house. His wife, Thede, comes in and sees it. She doesn't seem happy about it, but... She says something strange. She says that it looks just like Charlie, and then she stomps off. That's complimentary. We also see that Charlie's wife doesn't respect him. She's gone for weeks at a time visiting family, supposedly. He's pretty sure that she's sleeping around on him, but there's nothing that he can do, you know, to keep her around. And he's hoping maybe this thing in the jar will get him some of that respect that he craves. Says Charlie stood there longing after his wife, heart pounding frantically. Much later, when his heart slowed, he talked to the thing in the jar. So we know that he still wants her. He's just mm-hmm. longing after his wife. Even though she dis- disrespects him, he, wished that he, could, he wishes that he could win her over. He, even though she's, she's taken all of his money, too. When she runs around on him, the reason that she's not running around on him all the time is she, does, she doesn't have the money for it. So as soon yeah. as he brings home his paycheck, she grabs it and goes. And uh, we learn this backstory about her because he's actually telling it to the jar. He's starting to speak to this thing. Kind of reminds she- me of that Harlan Ellison story we did with the, the Prometheus story. Oh, right. Yeah. He had a similar relationship with that creature where it was yeah. set up and it was just the eye unblinking staring out at you and he starts talking to it and then starts bringing around people to look at it. And hmm. I wonder if that wasn't influenced a bit by this. So just then some of the guys from the general store show up at the house wanting to see the thing in the jar. Charlie, we, we thought, well, we, we came up to have a look at that, that stuff you got in that there jar. <laughs> <laughs> His plan works. Yeah, they're a little embarrassed, I think, that they're coming to look at it, but it's fascinating. A month goes by and Charlie's finally happy. Folks come by his house all the time to have a look at the thing. He's got lots of chairs and milk crates in his house now for people to sit on. People will come in and just sit and stare at the thing, not saying anything. Just roll their cigarettes and smoke and look at it. It was kind of a rude church gathering. Yeah, it's got that feeling because there's always this long contemplative period before anybody really says anything about it. So folks assemble, there's some small talk, and they sit down and it's just quiet while they roll those smokes. So mostly the men folks sit closer to the thing and the women would be in the back. Thede hates it. He says that she was ripe for jealous screaming. This thing here is like a holy grail-like thing. The first one to speak up would maybe be Gramps Meadow. Yeah, somebody would finally break the silence. 
Gramps or somebody else after this long period of quiet and quiet observation of the thing. And then people would get ready to start hashing this thing out. So it's like once somebody, you know, throws down the gauntlet, it's time to go and start speculating. This description of what we're getting is a description not of one specific time, but kind of a general because this happens a lot. Yeah. I think at some point in the story, it says like about every 10 days, people come over and do this. So this happens for months where every every week and a half, folks are coming over and hanging out and and going through the same ritual. So this is what a typical one of them is like. So Gramps says that he wonders what the thing is. He wonders about it when it's not when he's not around it. It even keeps him and his wife up at night sometimes. And they just sit there in the dark pondering the thing's existence. We both lie there thinking and we shivers. Maybe a hot night, trees sweating, mosquitoes too hot to fly, but we shivers just the same and turn over trying to sleep. This is some solid cosmic horror kind of stuff here. Just a thing in the jar and it challenges their whole understanding of life and the universe. Yeah, for some folks, it does cause this kind of existential wonder. You know, he says that we wonder what it is. Wonder if it's a he or a she or just a plain old it. Sometimes I wake up nights, think about that jar sitting here in the long dark. But for others, they see things that are much more significant and personal. Yeah, the next one to speak up is this guy, Juke. He says that the thing makes him think about this kitten. They had a cat that kept having litters when he was a kid. Eventually, they couldn't find anybody to keep taking the kittens. So when he was young, and probably way too young, his mom made him drown one of the kittens in a jar. He says, I know to this day the way that kitten floated after it was all over, drifting around, slow and not worrying, looking out at me, not condemning me for what I had done, but not liking me neither some haunting stuff yeah really traumatic i can't imagine why a parent would make a kid do that it's supposed to be some sort of life lesson i guess my mom grew up on a farm so she was like killing chickens when she was probably like seven years old sure you know like that's just life and death is part of the farm life and yeah yeah and these kittens there's nothing to be done with these kittens yeah you know if nobody will take them so you can't just throw them out into the night because they're not really part of the ecosystem are they i mean if they're not pets they're really not supposed to be around so that's bad for you know birds and i don't know that's that's a tough one to to oh yeah i don't agree with that i would never make my kids drown drown some kittens it's just a different way of life yeah yeah absolutely well and this was a big two gallon glass jar that she filled up for him to drown the kitten in or more, ki- I mean, I think you're supposed to drown the whole litter. But you can see how looking at this jar might remind, you know, might trigger that memory. There is a relation sure. there, something floating in a jar. But then it gets a little more expansive with this next guy. Yeah, the next person to speak is this black guy, Jadu. He says, the thing is life. From that lying back in the middle bamboo swamp, all sort of thing crawl, put out hand, put out feet, put out tongue and a horn and a grow. Little bitty amoeba, perhaps. And a frog with a bulge throat fit to burst. Yeah. He cracked his knuckles. It slobbered on up to its gummy joints and it, it am human. That am the center of creation. That am bamboo mama from which we all come 10,000 years ago. Believe it. Wow. So he says that this thing is the thing that they've all come from. Like all of humanity has come from and that yeah. they're eventually going to go back to it. I mean, his 10,000 year timeline might be a little off. But uh, it's kind of an interesting myth. It's a little bit closer to reality, maybe, than most creation myths. You know, it's it's yeah. a bit of slime that evolved in the swamp sure. <laughs> into other life forms that eventually became humans. Uh, yeah, interesting that that's what he sees. He, he, so it's not necessarily because I thought maybe it'd been quite a while since I read this. Yeah. And what I remembered is that maybe when people looked at the jar, they all saw something they hated or that was horrible. But. That's not the case. I mean, it's caused no. Gramps some trouble in the middle of the night, 
and obviously this drowned kitten is a problem. But now this person's saying, no, 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 that's the source of all life. That's a beautiful thing. That's a mid-a-bamboo mama. <laughs> you know, that's that's the beginning of creation right there. And yeah. so it's a totally different thing than what everybody else is saying. So then the people begin to argue about what color eyes the thing has. Gray, no, it's green, no, it's brown, black, red, no gray. And then they argue about what color hair it has, which I didn't know it had hair up until didn't that point. So pretty creepy. Yeah. So Charlie gives... Uh, gives up his idea about the thing in the jar. What if an old man went back into the swamp, or maybe a young kid, and wandering around for years and years, lost in all that dripping on the trails and the gullies and the old wet ravines and the nights, skin a turning pale and making cold and shriveling up. Being away from the sun, he'd keep withering away up and up, and finally sink into a muck hole and lay in a kind of scum like the maggot skeeter sleeping in sump water. Why, why for all we can tell, this might be someone we know. Someone we pass words with once on a time, for all we know. And just then a woman interrupts him. This is Mrs. Tridden. She says that her little boy Foley was lost out in the swamp and she begins to cry and freak out a bit. She thinks that this thing in the jar might be her lost three-year-old son or part of him yeah boy this went from some kind of i mean it was sort of a lurking fear type explanation some kind of de-evolution that happened out in the swamp a cool yeah. crafty and concept and then she went well wait a minute <laughs> my boy got lost out there so it morphed into something pretty personal she, it says eyes read her horror and hope my baby she whispered she breathed out my baby foley is that you foley tell me baby is that you i love this section here everybody held their breath turning to see the jar the thing in the jar said nothing It just stared blind white out upon the multitude, and deep in raw-boned bodies a secret fear juice ran like a spring thaw, and their resolute calmness and belief and easy humbleness was gnawed and eaten by that juice and melted away in a torrent. (laughs) Just then someone screams, it moved! Someone else says that, no, 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 it didn't move, your eyes are playing trick on them, and Juke says it moved just like the kitten. Mrs. Tridden thinks that it's her son and tries to claim it. Says, no, he's my boy, it's my boy. But the others, they calm her down. And the room becomes quiet again. I mean, if you're sitting there staring at that jar all night, eventually it's going to look like it's moving, right? I, sure. It, that just happened. Yeah. You know, I've been to a few open casket funerals mm-hmm. and visitations. And sure. yeah, the, you're, it always seems like they're moving or breathing to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I think you're, it's pretty easy for your mind to play tricks on you like that. Mm-hmm. So Granny Carnation speaks, says that they don't know what it is. And that's a good thing, because if they did... They wouldn't all show up to this place and have something to talk about, something to bring them together. She says it's like magic tricks magicians do at shows. Once you find the fake, ain't no more fun than the innards of a jackbob. <laughs> it's a pretty specific comparison, but yeah, yeah. once you once you know how it all works, then the magic is gone. So she's the most reasonable person in this room, I would say. Yeah. But then from outside, they hear a booming voice say, well, damn it to hell. I don't think it's nothing at all. It's Tom Cormody. Mm-hmm. Now, he says it's just some old jellyfish or something. And then Charlie suggests he might be a little jealous, but he says he just wanted to see a bunch of fools. He said he's had enough of this nonsense and he's leaving and any of you got any sense you're going to come with him. But nobody does. Uh Uh-oh, now suddenly Charlie's more popular than him. I don't (laughs) think he likes that. So after Tom leaves, Granny goes more into her theories, uh, but Charlie sees that Thede has slipped away off with Tom and he knows that they're planning something. Later, he's awoken by Thede coming in and she seems elated. She went with Tom to go see the carnival barker that sold Charlie the thing. Yeah, 
Uh, what a rough night he had, you know, because she took off and then he had to wait around and she just came in in the middle of the night to rain on his parade. Yep. So she said that the carny boss laughed at him, that the thing wasn't worth anything, and that he'd rip Charlie off. Yeah, she says it's just junk, Charlie. Rubber, paper mache, silk, cotton, boric acid. That's all. Got a metal frame inside. That's all it is, Charlie. That's all, she shrilled. So he tells her not to tell anyone about what she found, but she laughs at him. And he says, why don't you leave me alone? You dirty, dirty, jealous me and everything I do. I took shine off your nose when I brought that jar home. You didn't sleep right till you ruined things. And she says she won't tell anyone, but he says it doesn't matter. You spoiled my fun. Mm -hmm. That's all you wanted to do anyway. So then he snatches the jar away from her and he almost throws it because he's really angry. But then he puts it down gently and begins to sob. Yeah, he, he thinks that if he loses this jar, the world is gone. You know, this is all he's got, and he's been losing his wife for years. So he knows that she's going to leave him for Tom, maybe another man. Yeah, there's some great lines here. It says, Every month that passed, she danced further away, sneering at him, funning him. For too many years, her hips had been the pendulum by which he reckoned the time of his living. But other men, Tom Carmody for one, were reckoning time from the same source. That's a great line. He's just waiting to move in. You know, he's like, I'm waiting for her to leave me, and, he, and Tom's going, I'm waiting to move in. So he looks at her and he says, you didn't go to the carnival. You're, you're lying. He doesn't believe her. And she says, no, I win. I win. He goes, you know what? It doesn't matter what it is. People see things in it. That's what matters. Too many people believe there's something in it, Didi. You can't change that. The carny boss, if you talked with him, he lied. Now, I was wondering about that, actually. Do you think that she's lying about this? Yeah, I do. I do, too. Just because earlier the carny boss said, I've been looking at that thing and seeing weird things in it, and so I'm happy to get rid of it. I think carnivals move along pretty quick, and they don't usually tell you where they're moving to, because that's like yeah. part of the, the racket, you know? They they move along, and then you get up to some shenanigans where they're at, and you can't trace them, so... Oh, sure, but even if they were still in town, I mean, their their stock and trade is, is magic and oddity. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, so why would... They give up, like, oh, that thing I sold him? Oh, tell him he's an idiot. Yeah. They, I yeah. just, a, a, a carny boss would never do that. He'd say, no, 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 that's a magical thing. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, of course but, he would. Because he doesn't want him to come back out and kick his ass, no. you know? No way. So I think he's figured this out. That not only are you here to rain on my parade, you're lying about it, too. So then he moves at her. Charlie took a deep breath and then said, Come here, Thede. What you want? She asked sullenly. Come over here. He took a step toward her. Come here. Keep away from me, Charlie. Just want to show you something, Thede. His voice was soft, low, and insistent. Here, kitty. Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Here, kitty. Well, that got very movie-ish, very like <laughs> shining or something. <laughs> So then we just cut to a week later, and there's another group of people over at Charlie's to look at the thing. It's Gramps, Granny, Juke, and all the others are there. And someone asks about Thede, and Charlie says that she's off to Tennessee. She'll be gone a few weeks. Yeah, she kind of set up his alibi for him by running off so much. So Tom Komodi shows up, staying on the porch, but he's not gloating. He looks pale, like he's been ill, and he doesn't dare enter the house. He can see the jar, and this time he sees something that he's never seen before. What do you think's going on with him? Man, I don't know. Well, let's finish this out. I want okay, yeah. some ideas. I want to talk about it at the end here. Sure. So everyone else seems to have almost the same discussion that they did last week. Juke talks about the kitten. Miss Trident talks about her lost son. Granny and her stoner ideas, and then all is silent. Although they do seem, you know, Gramps says, I I've never noticed so definite before. It's got blue eyes. And Gramps says... 
No, they were they were brown last time we were here. This is different. And it's got brown hair. It didn't have brown hair before. Everybody else seems to be overlooking this. Some people are saying, oh, yeah, it did. But last time, nobody agreed on what it had before. And this sure. time, they, they still aren't agreeing. They're still not agreeing. Some people are saying it always had what you're seeing now. But Gramps sees, seems to think that things have changed. Right. Silence. And then Gramps whispered, I wonder. Wonder if it's a he or a she. Or just a plain old it. Charlie glanced up, satisfied, tamping his cigarette, shaping it to his mouth. Then he looked at Tom Carmody, who would never smile again in the door. I reckon we'll never know. Yeah, I reckon we won't. Charlie shook his head slowly and settled down with his guests, looking, looking. It was just one of those things they kept in a jar in the tent of a sideshow on the outskirts of a little drowsy town. One of those pale things drifting in alcohol plasma, forever dreaming and circling, with its peeled dead eyes staring out at you and never seeing you. And that is the end of the story. Yeah, that's it. It's got a nice symmetry between the opening and the closing. Yes, it does. Now... I don't really know exactly what's, what has happened. I mean, I feel like the implication is that he killed her. Yes. And then maybe he replaced her head in the jar? Yeah, I mean, there is some implication when he says, here, kitty, 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 that he's going to drown her in the jar. Yeah. Because that yeah. wasn't his story. That was another guy's story. Right. But that seems pretty extreme. Yeah, and kind of hard to do. Yeah, or does he kill her some other way and then decapitate her and put her head in the jar? But Even so, then it would look like a head in the jar now. It would look it? like a head in a jar, yeah. And the the thing that is in the jar before, nobody really knows what it is. I mean, they all agree it has eyes and, he- and hair, but that's it. Yeah. And they never say that it's a head. A jellyfish is something that, you know, the, right. that term, Tom I mean, said. they would notice that it would look totally different from what yeah. was in there before. So I don't think I don't think it's actually supposed to be her head in there. Well, what's going on with him? Is he just upset that she's gone, or you know, why is he upset? What is he seeing in the jar now? What is uh, what is it that transpired on his side? Yeah, because if he suspects, like, let's say it is the head thing, if he suspects that's her head in the jar, and he's freaked out that he killed her and put her head in the jar, why doesn't he go to the cops about it? Yeah, or make an accusation right there because he doesn't seem like he had a problem. Yeah. People the wrong way before. Right. So this story's been adapted a few times. I know it was adapted for Ray Bradbury Theater, but I believe mm-hmm. it was also on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and it was on there. It was definitely he put the wife's head in the in the jar. Uh. But I think it's supposed to be left up to interpretation. This is a yeah. little like uh, the October game was, actually. God, wasn't there oh, right. like child murder implied in that or oh, something? Right, but yeah. We couldn't agree if that was what had happened because <laughs> they were playing that, that witchy Halloween game in the dark. Yeah, where you put your hand in things and it feels like guts and eyeballs but then maybe it was really guts and eyeballs we don't know if that was actually the case or not well there's certain so there's certain little clues i think with the change in eye color that gramp seems to notice and then also the here kitty kitty thing the fact that tom looks very upset which could just be because she's missing i mean it it implies that that's what happened but the repetition of these theories from earlier yeah you know is it a he or a she or just plain old it and it says that juke is thinking about that kitten again yeah. The fisherman is saying, no, no, it's a jellyfish. So they're still seeing those things from before. That would lead me to believe that it hasn't changed, that he just dispatched his wife some other way. Yeah. Or maybe she just she just left him. Or maybe she just left him, yeah. But I mean, the here, here kitty kitty thing is seems pretty overtly like he did something to her. But yeah. we don't know. 
And that ambiguity, I think, is kind of cool and lets you kind of form your own story in your head. And that's what we do anyway when we read these things. Well, sure. It's, it works on a meta level as well, right? Because these people are sitting around a jar and they're not quite sure what's going on in the jar. So they all come up with theories and we're doing the same thing with the story. Exactly. Right now. So I think that that's, yeah. you know, the jar. And I think even the reason that there's the symmetry between the opening and the closing is almost to make it in the shape of a jar in terms of what it is as a story. You know, it's mm. it, it's yeah. It's kind of got these rounded ends. It's a very cool story, man. It's it's darker than you know his later stuff that uh, yeah. I like darker in tone. But as he said himself in that thing that I read, all of these stories are so <laughs> that when you're going through the October country, things get a little rough. And I, I like it. I like a little creepy, scary stuff, and it's it's fun. I'm gonna have to track down that Ray Bradbury theater to see how they ended it there. All right, that was and, the same as the Alfred Hitchcock presents because the ambiguity I think is really important. It's why this works as a story, and I don't know if it would be if it would be adapted as well. Yeah, and if they did adapt it, did they show the thing in the jar ever, or did they just kind of maybe show the back of it? Because I think that would right. be really important too to not ever show, never give a really good look at what the jar thing was. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of hints at it, yeah. Because if you see it, then you'll come up with your own thing. Yeah. Or you'll just explain it away. No, no, that's just a it's, it's a lump of tissue or it's just a dead fetal animal or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a good story. I'm looking forward to, to jumping into more Bradbury this month. Absolutely. You know, I want to thank our reader once again, Levi Nunez. Yes, Levi, thank you so much for reading. And if you want to check out some kind of psychedelic Conan-inspired music, find Loot the Body on YouTube. We will link out to it. And of course, we will also link out to our wonderful sponsor this month, Repairer of Reputations. Awesome group. They've got a new album called Insport 86, soundtrack to a non-existent film, but the kind of film that we'd all like to watch. Yes. That's available on Bandcamp, and we're linking out to that as well. Please, 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 folks, go check it out. Uh, We played some of those tracks on this episode, and if you've liked those, it's just more of that good stuff. Check it out, pick it up, buy it, listen. You know what other kind of good people we got out there? What's up? Our patrons. We do, and I would like to thank some of those folks as well right now, if I could. And I'm going to start with thanking Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill, thank you so much. Alexis Wolf, thank you. Jeremy Tanner, thank you. Sean Days, thank you. Jeff O'Brien, you're the best. Thank you, Michael Padalano. Lincoln Brown, thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse Willis. Joshua Shanks, thank you. And Craig Henry, thank you so much. Thank you, folks, so much for making the show possible. We're so glad to have you on the team. That's all we've got for this week of the October Country. We'll be back with more Bradbury next week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah! Oh, my God.